Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Kendall could never see how a conversation might feel safer to me than knowing he held my picture in his hands. Control was the sticking point for both of us. This program features the work of 2012 writer Claudia Rowe. Curator Sean Wong spoke with her in an interview. The book came about when I was working as a reporter in upstate New York, and an editor said, so what else is going on up there? And I mentioned, well, you know, there have been these women, and they're disappearing, and it keeps on happening, but the local paper's not covering it. And he said, get on it, make some phone calls, which I did. And very shortly after that, a man was arrested. His name was Kendall Francois, and I began to write to him. I was just frantic to understand what had driven him to do this. That's a pretty common motivation, I think, for a lot of writers. But it just got deeper and deeper with me, and it became quite consuming. And eventually, I had to begin to look at what was driving me. Why was I so wrapped up in this? And that essentially is the subject of the book. Do you find working on this makes you a different reporter? I certainly think that this project deepened my wish for what journalism can be and my frustration with what journalism more and more often is. That deeper level of inquiry, that psychological look, and that reflecting back at yourself, these sort of tenets of narrative journalism are just going away. But I find that kind of writing to be the most illuminating, to get me closest to what I'm reading for in the first place, which is to understand, to get some sense of a fuller truth, not just facts. It sounds like you kept wanting to look into darker closets, and it's almost like you were seeking out that feeling of being unsafe. I do think that's true. I think I had a long history of this in my life, of some fairly high-risk behavior other than soliciting a serial killer. I was constantly testing trying to look at darker and darker places and see what it meant and what did it mean if I survived. I think there are a lot of people who are doing that. Now we'll hear a selection from Claudia's live reading. For four years, I corresponded with serial murderer Kendall Francois, who pleaded guilty in 1998 to strangling eight women in upstate New York, the town where we both had lived. I was a reporter covering his case, but our letters were driven by personal rather than journalistic goals. This excerpt, which I am calling Prey, is from my book about that time. You should know uh, maybe just a couple details. Kendall is an enormous person. He's 6'5", almost 400 pounds. Uh, He's also African-American. All of his victims were small white women. This this picks up right after he was sentenced to eight life terms. The idea that I had been sitting in court, watching, yet unknown to him, frustrated Kendall so much that he phoned as soon as he was back in jail to propose that we meet in person. I had suggested this before many times, but Kendall always demurred. It made no sense, he'd say, if I was so leery of his gaze that I refused to send a photograph. How could I be comfortable sitting close enough to talk? Reasoning was useless. It was like trying to make myself heard in a cave of echoes. 
Kendall could never see how a conversation might feel safer to me than knowing he held my picture in his hands. Control was the sticking point for both of us. I refused to relinquish it by allowing him to view me whenever he chose, running his fingers over my image, creasing the paper across my face. And he was demanding the ability to do exactly that. But to hear Kendall tell it, my picture on a piece of paper meant nothing. He said he rarely even glanced at the photo album of family and friends he'd been allowed to keep in jail, though he liked knowing that they were close. All of our back and forth gave way to Kendall's curiosity. He told me to visit the next morning at 7.45 a.m. You sure about this, I said. Don't make me get up that early if you're just going to turn me away. Kendall laughed. He was always awake to see the dawn. Bright and modern, the Hamilton Street Jail had recently been renovated with an air conditioning system so powerful that visitors hugged themselves in the lobby, though it was August. Aside from a serial murderer, the squat building held approximately 100 street dealers, prostitutes, and middle-aged pedophiles. Most of them barely literate, Kendall complained. He sometimes helped a Jamaican murderer sound out the words in children's Bible stories. Compared to everyone else, Kendall believed himself calmer, saner, meant for better things. He'd say that and then fall silent. I wrote down the name of the inmate I was there to see and presented my driver's license to a guard with shiny black bean eyes. He immediately shook his head. No, Kendall was not accepting visitors. But I'd been invited, I told him. Kendall was expecting me. The guard looked skeptical, stalked off to confer with an administrator. He was still shaking his head when he returned. Across the room, a fat teenager began to wail, barred from using an out-of-state ID to visit her brother. And her shrieks grew louder as the guards marched back and forth trying to handle my request. The girl was blotchy and bloated, her hair ratty. Her sobbing turned hysterical and then abusive. Next to her, I sounded reasonable, just a young woman waiting to visit with a serial killer, all her papers in order. They let me in. I was shown to a stuffy cubicle with cinder block walls painted dull mustard. Inside, a filthy armchair had been pulled up to the narrow ledge where you were supposed to rest your elbows, speak into a handset, and stare at your loved one through plexiglass. The chair was low and saggy. Sitting in it, I could rest my chin on the shelf. One hour, said the guard, locking me inside. A moment later, he cracked the door open again to scan my face. A lot of them looked like you, you know. The victims. Small, dark hair. I nodded. Yes, I knew that. And he shut the door again. Seconds passed. Thick, slow, suffocating. The fabric of my white shirt felt clingy, outlining my shoulders, bunching up at the pockets across my chest. I thought so carefully about what to wear. Something that would make me look approachable and pleasant. Something that would say I was there neither to judge nor punish. I wore jeans, flat shoes, no makeup. I wanted to look like a friend. On the other side of the glass, I heard keys turning inside a heavy lock, the sound of that unchangeable moment, and held my breath. I couldn't believe this was about to happen. To that point, corresponding with Kendall had been a game, a dare, something artificial and apart from my real life. In our letters, I maintained this comforting distance. I could craft the person Kendall saw, be the authoritarian interviewer, or show sensitive vulnerability, whatever I thought might draw him out. The phone calls were harder. It felt like Kendall could hear my heart pounding through the dead spots. Still, 
There had been the safety of my home, the knowledge that he couldn't see me biting my lip, scribbling notes. Now we would be looking into each other's eyes. I froze in the silence, my mind paralyzed like a mouse beneath the claws of a descending owl. The metal door swung open, and there was Kendall, filling the frame. He stared down at me. My heart shriveled. Three guards worked to unlock his restraints as Kendall stood patiently, his face brushed with the barest trace of a smile. When they left, his mouth broke open into a wide grin, greedy and expectant, like I was a Sunday dinner he was sitting down to eat. He picked up the handset on his side of the glass, but could not get control of himself long enough to speak. He gaped and guffawed, turning his big head away and swiveling back at me in awe. You're tiny, he gasped. Just an illusion, I told him, merely the result of my low-slung chair. I jumped up and sat on its hard steel arm to demonstrate. But now I felt overexposed, and Kendall was laughing again, shaking his head in disbelief. I slid back down onto the moldy cushion. Most of the people on this planet look small to me, he offered. I cast about for the right introduction, something that would put us both at ease. But a decade of chatty interviewer tricks wilted before me, useless as a pen without ink. I asked Kendall when he would be transferred to state prison and if he knew where they were sending him. He did not. I asked how it had been growing up in Poughkeepsie and how he felt about leaving. This is like being interviewed by the high school paper, he said. So I began there, inquiring about football and the wrestling team, his friends and favorite teachers. Kendall had little to say about any of that. He wanted to talk music and movies. At one time, I'd imagined him, alone in his bedroom, listening to the blues and soul, music that I liked. But almost all of my early assumptions about him turned out to be wrong. What Kendall craved was white pop. Queen is the best rock group. Billy Joel, probably the best singer, he said, parroting the favorites listed by his graduating class in the high school yearbook. I was disappointed. I had enjoyed thinking of Kendall as complex and independent. He was, instead, a wannabe. As we spoke, his eyelids fluttered. He blinked often and constantly rubbed at his face. If we'd met two years earlier, before he was wearing a state-issued orange jumpsuit, I would have considered Kendall a bit off, but harmless. He seemed like a goofball, an easy, low-commitment pal. His teammates had loved him for that, for being big and gentle, constant and unthreatening. Women remembered how he'd kept them laughing for hours in the college cafeteria with his Star Trek impressions. Guys he'd played cards with gave no thought to leaving him alone with their girlfriends, and the girlfriends barely remembered him at all. He told me that I reminded him of a friend from kindergarten, a bubbly redhead named Rachel. He cataloged dozens of people who'd crossed his path in this peripheral manner, silently ruminating over comments they'd made decades earlier determining that these were slights, and then glancing up at me to announce that he did not wish to discuss them any longer. Anger at high school had touched off the whole murderous cycle, he said, but Poughkeepsie itself was really to blame. The gateway to hell is somewhere in this town, he told me. I've been saying that for years. I despaired at the city, too, pained by its menthol-smoking teenage moms wheeling new babies down the pocked sidewalks, shrieking at their confused toddlers who wandered behind the place breathed lost opportunity. Yet to hear Kendall describe it this way was excruciating. It's not like I was killing saints, he said, rolling his eyes. 
After high school graduation, Kendall had enlisted in the Army to earn money for college. Worst mistake of my life, he said. He'd been stationed in Hawaii, where several local prostitutes had disappeared during that time. Kendall insisted he knew nothing about that. His few trips off base had revolved around playing video games at the nearest bar, keeping a low profile. Hawaii? It's full of the most racist people on earth, he said. They hate everyone. Black, white, anyone who's not Hawaiian. Of course, pretty much everyone on earth hates white people, though that's not specifically your fault. (laughs) Three years into his four-year commitment, Kendall had been discharged for being overweight. He refused to talk about that, too, saying only that he never should have come back to Poughkeepsie. Something about returning to his parents, a failed soldier with no prospects, seemed to crush him too humiliating to face. When I asked about this time, his voice dwindled away, barely audible. I don't want to talk about that, he whispered. This had been 1992, but as far as anyone knew, his crimes hadn't begun until 96. So what had happened during the intervening years? He was shaking his head before the question was out of my mouth, muttering about public assistance, saying he'd hoped to study zoology at the community college because he liked animals. He'd wanted to become a science teacher. High school science, I asked. No, high school kids aren't very nice. I wanted to teach middle school. He got only as far as cleaning its hallways. It must have been hard to come home, aimless and broke, kicked out of the army and hired to sweep floors at a place where you'd graduated eight years before. Kendall rubbed his face and said he didn't want to talk about that either. Did you ever get any sort of help or counseling? No. Kendall had trudged through 27 years, massive, yet unseen, all signs of his rage ignored. A county judge had sentenced him to a few months of group therapy for sexual deviance after Kendall was arrested for beating up a prostitute. But by then, five corpses were already rotting in his attic. The sessions did little good. Kendall killed two more women while attending those weekly meetings. And not until he sat in the county jail awaiting a decision on the death penalty was a social worker dispatched. She had been helpful, Kendall allowed. But the therapy was over now that he was headed for state prison. Did you ever talk to anyone when you were a kid, I asked. Do you think it would have helped? Kendall was quiet for a long time before answering. Looking back from what I know now? Yeah, he said. I walked out of our interview oddly elated. This was not a seething monster. Kendall was a person you could converse with. A man who struggled with the thoughts in his head, who loved music and fantasy. And I had survived him. I pulled out of the parking lot, smiling to myself. But within minutes, the thrill had evaporated, and a clammy sensation of failure draped itself heavily around my shoulders. Kendall had seen all of my earnestness, all of my fear. By the time I got home, the humiliation was overwhelming. I tried to write about our visit and nodded off at my desk. I curled up on a sofa and stared out the window. Hours slid past. By mid-afternoon, I crawled into bed and lay there, my mind echoing like an empty warehouse. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw Kendall's orange jumpsuit, his aviator glasses, his huge teeth. I could not name my feelings. I did not try. I just waited for the horrible blankness to pass. And barely noticed how hard I was fighting not to cry. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. 
The 2012 curator of this program is Sean Wong. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Mo Preventure. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, and Mo Preventure. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Rachel Matthews, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.